relief factor, pain relief that's natural, pain relief that works, and pain relief that attacks the source of the pain. That's the experience of tens of thousands of Americans who are taking Relief Factor right now. See their incredible video endorsements at relieffactor.com and then order your three-week quick starter pack for just $19.95. That's less than a dollar a day. Find out if it can work for you like it works for me by ordering your three-week quick starter pack today. Relieffactor.com, relieffactor.com. Be the next success story. Going deeper on the big issues that matter to you. This is your exclusive podcast, America First, one-on-one, with me, Sebastian Gorka, former strategist to President Donald J. Trump. Welcome back, dear friends, to America First, one-on-one, where we get to enjoy a discussion with one of our regular friends, our contributors to the show, or just special guests who are truly experts on a given issue for the whole hour, uninterrupted. Yes, indeed. If you are new to one-on-one, please subscribe. Tell your friends this is long form. It is the way we love to tackle the big, big strategic issues of the day. And today, it's somebody who's been a wonderful friend, a supporter. Full disclosure, he actually publishes my writings on his superlative website, americangreatness.com. He is the one and only Chris Buskirk. Chris, welcome to America First One-on-One. Oh, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this. All right, me too, me too. I mean, I just I just love the opportunity to just talk and get, you know, in, instead of three minutes, five minutes, we, we get you for the whole hour. It's super excited. So for those who just, you know, somebody sent them this link or they just clicked on something that came up on the algorithms. They're not familiar with, with you, your work, your amazing website. Tell the world in just a, a few minutes, where do you hail from? What do you do? What's your passion in life, Chris? Uh, I live in Arizona, grew up here, and uh, I am the publisher and editor of American Greatness, which you ha- are I, to which you are a contributor and which you are very kind to have many of our writers come on all the time. So, uh, like you, uh, Seb, I am uh, you know very focused on, as our former president would say, making America great again. That's what we're trying to do. There's a lot of ways to do that. Some of that is politics. Some of that's culture. Some of that is just raising your family, making sure you get the kids to church on time on Sunday mornings. But all of those things contribute to making this a better place to live. And tell us about what you did before American Greatness. What's your professional history? So for I was uh, well, I'll give you the uh, the short version. But, uh, you know, so I was grew up in a pretty sort of politically oriented family. So nobody was actively in politics, but it was sort of dinner table conversation. And uh, my parents and my father in particular was uh, very um, instrumental, I guess I would say, in sort of giving me a political and historical education while I was growing up. And I was very interested in the subject. when I was an undergrad uh, in college at Claremont McKenna College, and I started working at a place called the Claremont Institute, which still exists and actually has gone from strength to strength uh, since I left there. Maybe maybe that's a coincidence. <laughs> maybe they, uh, but they were doing great before, and they've just continued to do fantastic work ever since then. And uh, they, uh, through my some mentors there, they uh, their work kind of led me to graduate school in uh in political theory and in history and uh i was working at the claremont institute again this is all sort of right of center politics uh back in the 90s and i did realize uh, one thing there which is that i did not want to be involved in the academic world and so i left uh when i was done with graduate school i came back to arizona 
and was an entrepreneur for 20 years and was primarily involved in uh, finance-related businesses uh, of different kinds, sort of, uh, you know, saw opportunities, built, you know, started companies, built them, sold them, you know, did found something else afterwards and went on to the next one. And then, um, you know, sort of fast-forwarding to the end of the 20 years um, after having sold a company um, <laughs> in 2000, uh, that something changed in this country in 2015, as you well know, which is that, um, this uh, real estate developer from Manhattan, uh, who is known for blue suits, white shirts, and big red ties, uh, decided he was going to run for president. And that changed the trajectory of, uh, of my career because I was a pretty early Trump adopter. Uh, like, I got it early. Um, right, in fact, it was right after the first Republican debate that I said, gosh, I didn't, I don't think I even got that he was totally serious uh, about running. Very few um, people I, believed that he was serious. They thought it was some kind of crazy publicity stunt for his business or his TV show. Tell us, Chris. Because he had talked about it before, yes, right? And, for 20 uh, years. And he was sort of like, okay, well, Donald Trump's doing what Donald Trump does. Um, and then after that first debate, I thought, hold up a second. I think this guy actually is really doing this. And, uh, and I went online um, because I really like some of the things he was talking about with regards to immigration and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, having pride in this country and making America great again and uh, manufacturing and uh, build it, rebuilding the middle class and all these things. I thought, geez, you know, and one of the things that really struck me was the way he's talked about China. Uh, and then I went back and watched old YouTube videos of, uh, of President Trump, you know, going back to the 80s. He's been talking about rebuilding America's manufacturing base and about the threat from China for decades. Yeah. And that was really when I understood, hold up a second, this guy's for real. This He's not just sort of riffing, um, uh, you know, off the cuff here. I mean, he, he is that. But this is stuff he's been thinking about and talking about for a very long time. And, and, and so, sorry, uh, sorry. So, so unpack that. What was... You know, in, in the good usage of the word, what what was the way that you were triggered? Was it this talk on China? What was it that made you say, hang on, hang on, this guy is somebody I can support? It, he, was ta he was talking about all of those things that I think were core to uh, this country and core to the conservatism that I grew up with and I think is really re reflective of historical American conservatism, but that had been out of favor basically from the time Ronald Reagan left office until, you know, until Donald Trump started talking about those things again. So, you know, it had been 25 or 26 years and, uh, you know, sort of the, you know, the Bush, Clinton, uh, Bush, Obama years were all about, um, they were, they were all about something else. Right. It was all about anything other than the American middle class. It was, you know, the more people we can get in this country from other countries, I guess the better we all will be some, somehow if we ship our uh, if we ship our middle class, if we ship our factories over to China, guess what? You know, we'll get cheaper toasters and uh, and that won't won't that be fantastic. Yeah. And, you know, look, I, I've said this to people a lot over the past. Uh, well, even before Trump, because I'd sort of been awakened on this stuff before that, but like on trade. Um, you know, early in the sort of in the in the big sort of globalization phase, you know, I, I, I was, I, I guess, as uh, bitten by the bug as anybody else. I thought, well, you know, great. We're, we're in favor of free trade. 
um, and that'll be good. And and it'll you know there's comparative advantage and all these sorts of things. Just sort of the the talking points, right? And I remember years and years ago now, it's probably been the early 2000s, um, and, I, and I was making this argument to uh, my father, who was vehemently opposed to these things on what would later become Trumpian type grounds. And I said, but yeah, like we'll be able to get like things cheaper at Walmart. You know, isn't that good? Isn't that good for everybody? And he said, not if you don't have a job. And that was like. Pretty, pretty simple analysis. Pretty, pretty solid analysis, right? Hundred percent. So, like, I've, I've told, like, I, you know, I got to give my dad credit where, where it's due. But that was, uh, you know, that was sort of the opening. And then when we get into 2015, um, and Donald Trump is running for president, I'm thinking, okay, this is somebody who's talking about these things that no Republican has wanted to talk about, uh, and they're really critical to this country. And then when I realized that these were things that he really believed, because you could see a, a long, long track record over many years of him talking about these things, I said, okay, uh, I get it. Like he's for real, and uh, and I'm going to support him. And my one uh, my one insight, I guess, uh, that of that era that w- that turned out to be really correct. What was not that I thought he would win at that point because I didn't know I knew I wanted him to win, but was that he wouldn't he needed uh, he needed people and he needed institutions that would be around him to help him make his the, his case to the public. Yeah. And I looked back at the at the 60s and the 70s and I thought, you know, uh, you know, uh, in the Buckley era of National Review in the 60s and 70s, you know, they really were instrumental in making the arguments that became Reaganism and, and helped elect Ronald Reagan in 1980 uh, to, and all to the good. Uh, of course, in 2015 and you know even up until now, uh, you know, National Review has been vehemently anti-Trump and I thought, well, hold on a second. You know, and this is fall of 15 now. I thought, well, maybe we just start, maybe I just start something, uh, a magazine or, or some type of journal that can make the Trumpian America first arguments and kind of give him the, the the support that he needs that's out there in the media and in the public. And that was really the genesis of founding American Greatness, which we just, as I think you know, we just passed our five-year anniversary this past summer. So it took a little time of to planning and getting uh, friends and partners and colleagues together. But, you know, between the end of 15 and the summer of 16 we put everything together and that was uh that that's what caused uh the launch of uh our our web magazine american greatness and and i you know i would say this if i i weren't a contributor but you have such incredible people like victor davis hansen lord black as regulars you know you, Mm -hmm. you have made a superb contribution and you know i often get asked what do I? What should I read? What can I trust? There's so much disinformation, even on our side. We have one of our most popular articles on our website, which are the the 14 most reliable sources of information for conservatives. And yours is right, right up there at the top with with you know the big, big names, you know the giants like Breitbart or or Daily yeah. Caller. So you've really, in five years, you've done something truly remarkable. We're talking to Chris Buskirk. Follow him on Twitter. I don't know how he got it. Kind of. Uh, irks me. It's the Chris Buskirk. I'm just Seb Gorka. I mean, he's the, the Chris Buskirk in the website. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you. I, I can't we'll, even we'll, tell we'll, you we'll, we'll talk about that. We'll, we'll, Chris Buskirk first. <laughs> I know, because somebody grabbed it, but I like it. The Chris Buskirk and Am Greatness is the way, a website, amgreatness.com. Okay, so let, let's let's dive straight in here. Give me, you're, you are now Dr. Chris Buskirk 
internist, surgeon, neuroscientist, talk to us of, about the state of conservatism in America. Can you give us the diagnosis now? Uh, talk to us I, I, about what happened in 16 and talk to us the state of affairs the, the, the health or, or lack thereof of the conservative body politic five years later? Better is, is, is the answer. Uh, that's the one word answer, getting better. I think there's still a lot to be done. Um, the patient is not out of the woods yet, I will tell you that. Uh, but compared to where we were in 2015 or 2016, I, think, I, I do think much healthier, much uh, more vibrant. Uh, you know, I wrote a book in 2017 about the election, and it, it, the subtitle of the book is What Conservatism Inc. Missed and What It Needs to Learn. And there was, uh, in that book, I offered a critique of what I thought had gone wrong with uh, with institutional conservatism in this country and yeah, sort give, of how it is. Everybody needs to read your book, but give us a summation of, of what the diagnosis is for the conservative. What, what, what ails us? What is the most serious that we suffer from? You know, I'll tell you at the at the time, and I think this is still true to some extent, but but in but getting better. But at the time, what we had was a, a movement that was just moribund. It was um, it was you know, if you look at the institutional ecosystem on the right, you know, they're all sort of post World War II institutions. Uh, most of them actually were founded in the late '60s or in the '70s, and they were purpose built. Uh, for a particular set of problems and for a particular uh, time, and you know, especially if you think about that era, these were institutions that were heavily focused on the challenges of that era. So the Cold War or uh, rising uh, collectivism at home, an issue, by the way, that we still have to deal with, but we're not fighting the Cold War anymore. Um, and so what happened was, is you know, basically we. We, we won some of those. We, you know, the Cold War is over. The Soviet Union doesn't exist. Uh, you know, the, I don't know. The airlines are deregulated. You know, that happened in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, those sorts of battles uh, were won. Uh, but there were new challenges, um, some of which, by the way, were unintended consequences of the policies that we pushed on the right. And so that's, you know, that's uh, what I would call a constructive criticism of the right when there were unintended consequences, like people on the right were the ones pushing, for instance, to get China into the World Trade Organization back in 2000. Um, but there were unintended consequences, and we don't have to berate one another over. We just need to recognize that um, there were uh, that that there were bad uh, externalities for Americans, and we just adopt. We just uh, adopt, or sorry, I should say, we just uh, change course. And um, you know, that's really what I think 2015, 2016, and up till now has been about is about getting back to uh, the core focus of what it means to be an American and what it means to be. Uh, in particular on the American right, which is we have to, this is what America first means. We have to always put the interests of the country and of the American citizens first above anything else. That's why we have a government. That's why the government was instituted. It is to protect us. It is to, you know, both our material welfare, our spiritual welfare to some extent. Obviously, that's a matter of personal conscience. Uh, but, you know, we have to defend our borders. We have to, we have to defend the lives and property of our citizens. People, Americans should not have to do something extraordinary 
just to live an ordinary middle class life. And that's really what's uh, been going on in this country. And you can see it across the board, no matter what metric uh, you're looking at. Lifespan hasn't really been increasing. Obesity is at an epidemic proportion. Uh, you know, real wages started stagnating in the 70s, haven't, haven't grown much in the past 50 years. Um, the statistic that I throw out at people all the time, which is, uh, you know, I think is is chilling, but it, it tells a lot about what's been going on, is that as late as um, as late as 1988 or 89, it was possible to raise a family of four, uh, own a house, send your kids to college, own a car, pay for health care, all those sorts of things. You could do that on a single median wage, one wage. Right. Um, and you just can't do it now. A single median wage will not buy all of those things. And so there's been a sort of a slow uh, decline in the standard of living. You have to you know, work twice as hard in order to get the same things. And, you know, that is really what, what we need to be focusing on is how do we how do we make our people healthier, more prosperous, more secure uh, and more able to live what we think of as a traditional historical uh, American middle class life. Uh, that should be be much more common. The book was entitled American Greatness, How Conservatism Inc. Missed the 2016 Election and What the D.C. Establishment Needs to Learn. We're talking with its co-author, Chris Buskirk, the founder, the editor-in-chief of American Greatness, which is the Am Greatness uh, on uh, Twitter and amgreatness.com. Um, I'm going to goad you right now because of that subtitle, because you're being unusually um, nice I haven't heard the fighting words when it comes to the GOP establishment. So here I'm going to poke you. I'm going to poke the bear, Chris. Isn't, you know, the left has gone nuts. I mean, the left is a radical America-hating party from Rashida Tlaib all the way to that senile old man in the White House. But isn't one of our biggest problems the establishment, the GOP establishment? I don't mean the never-Trumpers, the crazies like Crystal. I mean, the majority of, of the machinery, is, isn't that really the, the primary, the, fi- the five-meter uh, target or the stumbling block to this message of America first and Americans first? Yeah, no, look, it, it's a big, it is a big issue. I mean, let me say one thing before I talk about the GOP establishment, because this, here is something, you'll, you'll hear some fighting words. Uh, when people talk about the, quote, never Trump conservatives in D.C., and they, talk, and they mention, you know, you mentioned Bill Kristol, there are others, of course, those people are not conservatives. They never have been, no. and they never will be. And it is time for us to recognize that, at best, they are fifth columnists who are trying to undermine everything that the American right does. They are trying to cut our legs out from under us, and we should stop thinking that these people are somehow on our side, but we just disagreed over Donald Trump. We don't disagree just over Donald Trump. We disagree on absolutely everything. And those people need to simply be written off and written out of the American right. They've done it for themselves. They've been telling us for five, six years that they want nothing to do with us. Can we just take them at their word? Please. Like the, it just is. This is something that's incensing uh, to me. Um, there's a different uh, it, it, there's a different sort of analysis that I go through when you think about sort of the frustrations we have with the Republican establishment. And, and I do think I, I do want to say the the. I guess the the positive first, but I'll, I'll come I'll come back to the work we still have to do here. We really are better off than we were five years ago. Uh, there are a lot of people who got motivated 
um, to do things as mundane as become, uh, you know, precinct committeemen uh, who are very much aligned with uh, with the America First movement and set of uh, ideas. All of that said, um, you know, this, we still have this situation where, you know, it's a little bit like in the Old Testament where, you know, God says to the Israelites who've been in, who, who've left Egypt, he says, go up into the promised land and, and possess that land. And they get up there and they're afraid to do it and they won't go in. And so they wind up wa wandering around uh, for 40 years in the wilderness. Moses never crosses the border into the into the promised land. It's the next generation that does it. And that's sort of the issue that I think we are dealing with right now is that there's a generational shift uh, that may you know, it, it still ha we still have to work on this to make this happen. But there's a generational shift, and there are people in uh, in in leadership positions in the within the Republican Party, and that means within the party itself or in elected uh, positions. They just still haven't gotten the memo, right? They're still yeah. wondering, well, why can't we go back to the way it was during the during the Bush years? Uh, why can't we invade Afghanistan again? Like, why can't I just, uh, when I leave office, why can't I get a, a cushy job lobbying for some Chinese company or for a big tech company? And they haven't really, either they, at this point, they either, are, they're just never going to get it or they or they don't care. They do get it, but they say, well, I'm just going to figure out how I can line my own pockets. And either way, uh, those people, you know, those that, that guard needs to be changed for a new generation of, uh, of leaders who do get it and, and who are with the program. I have, you know, I want you to help me with this, Chris, whether it is the never Trumpers who, as you said, were never conservatives to begin with, whether it's, you know, the, the Lincoln Project uh, psychos or, or whether it's whether it's the GOP, yeah, just career politicians. Can you ha have you identified because I'm still trying to work this out why they hate him so much? Was it a class issue? Was it that, you know, he's from Queens? He's not, you know, he, you know, he may have gone to the right schools, but, but he didn't grow up in the right part of, of New York. Or is it really the fact that, you know, he is a billionaire. He isn't owned by Big Pharma, by oil or the unions, therefore you can't control him. Have you identified that, that center of gravity as to why the right-wing establishment so utterly and completely detests President Trump? You know, yeah, I thought about this so much over the years, and I think it's not there's not a single answer to it. There, there's a few of them, and they're they're intertwined. I mean, you you touch on one of those reasons. I mean, there is sort of a class element to it, and so you have this, you know, you have this weird thing where you've got a billionaire and um, and the sort of political establishment thinks of him as as low class <laughs> uh, you know sort of like the, the old movie Caddyshack you know Randy Dangerfield is a super rich billionaire at the, at the country club that are not billionaire but he's super rich you know real estate developer and the the um, the, the blue the bloods at the country him. club don't like him right right um, and that's sort of the situation you have I think with Donald Trump is that these people they pride themselves just on having the right manners right because that is how they've gotten ahead. They actually haven't accomplished much. What they're good at is passive aggressive office politics. And here comes Donald Trump. Uh, and he just tells you the way it is. Like it, don't like it. He's very straightforward. Um, and he's very direct. And that is something that they just they don't like. It is uh, it is outre to them. Uh, because that's not the way you do it. You you know you say you don't say what you mean. You talk around the issue, and then you go make a complaint to HR or something. <laughs> and that's you know it's sort of the HR ethics that it, that it have infected so much of this country in general. 
uh, but definitely the political establishment. So you had that sort of class element. There was a bunch of there was some personal stuff too that I think really uh, that really contributed uh, to the just the intense visceral hatred of uh, of Donald Trump. And you know, like, about- like, like what? Like the fact that he's an unabashed, toxic, masculine alpha male. What? What is, what is the personal aspect? Because I, I love. I mean, your description that it's passive aggressive office politics is perfect. I mean, it truly is. And he has no time for that. I mean, when I first met him in 2015, when he asked me to advise him. You know, I had issues with him. You know, it's not, I grew up in the UK, stiff upper lip, debate club, so it was a little bit of a shock for me. But within about three minutes of sitting in Trump Tower with him, I realized this guy hates political correctness. I mean, with a passion, he detests yeah. it. So it wasn't hard for me to say, sure, I'll work for you. So what, talk to us about the, the personal aspects of the hatred. Well, so t- so two things on that. One is, I mean, you you bring up sort of the alpha male versus like beta male take on this, which I think uh, has a lot going for it. If you think, if you want to think about it that way, I mean, you think about the people in the political class and in the sort of political media class who just absolutely detest him. And I mean, I hate to say this because it sounds really trite, but I do think it, there's a lot of truth to it. I mean, you basically have. The high school jock versus like the guy who was like the third clarinet in the high school band who got his lunch money taken away Uh, or maybe didn't even get his lunch money taken away, who just never felt adequate because he didn't get the girl and a guy like Donald Trump did. Right. Uh, And so you have that sort of resentment that's built up against people like Donald Trump by by the people like, you know, who are sort of the professional chattering class in Washington. the, The other element to it though is, is and this is where i think this i my theory is that in part he really offended those people early on because he didn't do what candidates always do which is he didn't go around and have all the meetings in washington and go sit in the, and go he, sit he, in the he didn't, he didn't kiss the ring of the sinecure set he, that's correct. He didn't go around. He they, that's how they that's how they got their self worth. Like the, oh, the candidates come through, and then you know we pass judgment on them, and but they have to bow to us. Yes. Uh, and he just never did it. He didn't go and sit down with the editors of this magazine or with the the you know the policy analysts of that think tank, and that really bothered them <laughs> because that was just a it's the way it was done, but b it's also how they felt like they had power over somebody who who was more powerful than they are. I think that is I, – I haven't really dwelt on that, but that is hugely is significant. The fact that he didn't go around for those private meetings and they get to pose as the experts who right. – that advise the candidate. That, that, I, I think that has to be, that has to be really a, a, one of the most important aspects of, of the source of the, the animus, the hatred against him to this very, very day. Um, Chris, oh, by the way, uh, please, uh, guys – um let's it it is just after the anniversary of september the 11th he wasn't invited to the official democrat run uh commemorations in new york he had his private commemoration but let's support a man that the left is trying to destroy 24 hours a day he's america's mayor he brought new york back from the brink in the 1980s 
Then after the September 11th attack, they're trying to bankrupt Rudy. They're trying to strip him of his law licenses. Please, for me, as a personal favor, will you go to RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com and support this man's fight? Please make a donation today at RudyGiulianiFreedomFund.com. Big question for me. And this is one that actually excites me. It annoys me that we haven't done enough. but, But as a challenge, it really excites me. And you've done so much with American greatness uh, towards this end. Will you talk to our, our millions of listeners and, and viewers across the nation about the, the amount of work that is left to be done? You're, you're right. So many people have volunteered to become precinct captains and so forth. But when it comes to the center of gravity of, of the heavy lifting of, of the, the intellectual work to, to fill out, what does America first mean? What does MAGA, Make America Great Again, mean for a second Trump term or for the next 20 years? Uh, when, when Reagan won, not only had there been the Buckley phenomena for decades, uh, there was a flourishing, in the, uh, just an absolute flourishing of the think tanks, the movements, the, 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 the kitchen cabinet of advisors. That really hasn't happened in the last five years. So talk to us about, well, whether you agree with me, apart from things like American greatness, how much work is left for us to do, Chris, in terms of building the, the intellectual? I don't want to create an, another bunch of sinecure sad cases, but how much work is there for us to do in terms of building out um, the, the ecosystem of this new conservative movement? There's a lot of work. I mean, I, we're not, you know, what's uh, sort of the Churchill phrase? It's not, uh, it, it's not the beginning of the end. Maybe we're at the end of the beginning. Right. Um, we have some new institutions. We're one of them. I mean, your show is one of them. There are others out there that where where there's a new ecosystem that has been birthed. Uh, it needs to be bigger. It needs to be stronger. Um, and that, and we need to. Um, one one of the things that I think that the old version, sort of the 1.0 version of the conservative ecosystem in this country did wrong. The, when you're talking about sort of media policy, that type of thing, they were siloed off really from the rest of the country and from the from electoral politics. They, they were doing and, their you know, thing over there, but not part of the bloodstream, correct? That's right. That's right. They're just like, we're just sitting over here. You know, we're, or it's like, I was in a, <laughs> when I was in my twenties, I was sitting in a, in a think tank, uh, m- meetings before I, uh, sort of left and, you know, went back into private business. Um, but you know, we, uh, there had been a project on, uh, you know, sort of analysis and whatnot, and it got rolled out and everybody who saw it loved it. And the politicians loved it. It was just a really good piece of work. And then afterwards, uh, when I was in this meeting and, you know, I was just a young guy in my twenties at the time, I said, well, how, you know, how are we going to implement this? Um, and you know, it's sort of like pulling the, the needle across the, the record. Everybody <laughs> sort of stares at the idiot uh, kid down at the end of the table. It's like, who let this, who let this guy into the meeting? How, like, how, you know, dare, we, you, how dare you ask the most important question? How dare right, you? Exactly. Oh, sorry. We don't, we're done here. Like we, we don't, it, this is a think tank. Here's, here's my white tank. paper. What do you mean? I'm done. Here's my op-ed. I'll have an op-ed next week and I'm done. Thank you. No, a hundred percent. You know, you, and, and so this is like, we need to take the people who are doing that sort of work, which is necessary, and those, they need to be integrated much more closely with the people who are doing actual like electoral politics or office holders. 
Um, and there's some of that that goes on that in, in D.C. that I think is pretty good. There's a different problem with D.C. because it gets alienated from the rest of the country. But, you, you know, I, you know, think about it um, the way, for instance, like a uh, I don't know, like a like a. Uh, a SEAL team works like you have people you have a medic and you have a comms guy and you have a sniper and then you know you have door kickers right everything is on the team and they operate together right because they need all of those skill sets together and so what we need to do is make sure that we're not siloing off all of the different component parts uh, of our team so that we can be a, a lot more effective and that everybody everybody's working um, everybody's working together on actually achieving something. And this is why one of the things that I've been trying to encourage people on our side to do is, you know, we should maybe think, um, when we're thinking about our political goals, we should be thinking in terms that are much more concrete and less and, and, and less in ideological terms, right? We can have an ideology that leads us to, uh, to, to informs the way we think about our goals. But if we're just talking slogans, we never achieve anything. So I said, well, what does that mean, Chris? What does it mean to be concrete and, 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 you know, embrace an America first agenda? Well, I don't know. You know, I mean, think about we have secure borders. Uh, we have rising real wages for the middle class. Uh, we have as a goal that you can raise a family of four on a single median income. Uh, lifespan is increasing. Health is increasing. Inflammatory and diseases like, uh, uh, you know, diabetes and heart disease decline instead of increase. You know, the, all these very tangible things. Like if the, if we were able to achieve half of those things, It'd be this would be a much yeah. stronger, happier, more cohesive country and uh but we need to be very specific about what our goals are so when we want to achieve those goals we can say you know if you want right if you want median real median wages for the middle class to rise that is quantitative like how do we achieve that um if we want to see you know the the fertility rate rising you know, we want more families having more kids so that there's more americans uh well you can measure that you know, let's you know, let's hold ourselves accountable to the things that we want that we think would make life better for Americans. And then let's figure out how we can achieve those specific things. And, and one of the things we can do right now here on America First is to support those who've taken a stance as conservative businessmen and are under withering attack from the left that wants to cancel them. One of them, if you enjoy the show, if you like our new podcast, is, of course, Mike Lindell, a man who dared, dared from the Rose Garden to say, read the Bible, pray more, and let's make the American family stronger. Please support a man who makes our shows possible. Go to MyPillow.com, use my name, and Mike will give you up to 66 percent off his amazing line of products you can call them on 800-829-8468 that's 800-829-8468 mypillow.com promo code g-o-r-k-a just send the guy some love tell him you're here for him and that makes shows like this one possible mypillow.com promo code g-o-r-k-a uh, well, I'm going to risk sounding like a, a broken record at this point because for those who've listened to my, my uh, daily radio show, they've heard me talk about this more than once. But I think it is the, the sucking chest wound of our movement. Uh, God willing, the president will announce imminently that he's running in 2024. When I, was, um, when he, I had him on my show recently, I asked him a very specific question, which interestingly, he didn't tackle head on. Let's play that cut. 
if I may, as a former insider, the key question is going to be personnel. We need to build the bench that helps staff you and doesn't subvert you. What are your plans? What would the second term look like? And who's going to build that bench for you, sir? Well, first of all, for your listeners, you did a fantastic job. You were terrific. I deal with you a lot. And I dealt with you after you went out and made a fortune. I hope you're making a fortune anyway, but I think you are based on your ratings. But uh, I dealt with you a lot, and that's why I do your show, and I don't do a a lot of other shows. I do people that I respect and people that have been fair, and you've been – really, I congratulate you. But you were very important, and the great job that you did. You have a knowledge. I heard the word strategist mentioned in the opening, that you were a strategist. And that's really what Biden needs. He needs somebody to help him because – Our country is embarrassed. Our country has never been embarrassed like they are right now. In uh, the speech in Alabama, where we had a massive crowd, they say 68,000 people showed up in the rain. It was rain and thunder. And uh, we put up, I put up, I had the idea the morning of, this was Saturday, the morning of, uh, put up the General Patton, the opening monologue that he does in the movie Patton, which I don't know if it got the Academy Award or very close and I think George C. Scott did get the Academy Award. But I, we put up the opening monologue, and I said, that is not a woke general, but it's a general that knows how to win. And we have guys that are more interested in things that have nothing to do with our military. It's, a, it's really what's go- going on now is crazy with our whole country, with our whole country. It was interesting. He talked a lot about me and then stopping the woke generals, but I didn't hear a lot about building the bench. Chris Buskirk, you are supporting some amazing people. You've got incredible contributors like VDH, Lord Black. Uh, I thank you for introducing me to J.D. Vance. So we got him on our show. God bless him. I hope he wins his race. Are we doing enough to build a bench of people who are prepared to step in the arena in three years' time and work in a second Trump administration? No. No, we're not. Uh, we're not doing nothing. So I, I don't want to give that impression, but we're not doing enough. It's um, I mean, what we really should have right now is we should have an administration in waiting that is doing the that is doing the work yeah. today um, that didn't even get done in a lot of cases throughout the entirety of the of the Trump administration, preparing a presidential administration that can go in uh, that they can go in and on inauguration day start to wield the power that has been given by the American people after the election. That is all. That really is a lot of work, and we need to have people who are putting together um, the books uh, that vet the sort of eight, the eight thousand or some odd presidential appointments that the next Republican president will need to make. That uh, knows who needs to go where. Uh, and starts to and starts to develop the policy. Like a lot of times, we know what the policy is, but how it gets written um, so that it can be implemented quickly by the bureaucracy, uh, meaning by all the departments and agencies and and whatnot that make up the federal government. That 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 is how policy is implemented. That's not easy. I mean, that is that is real work. Uh, and look, Democrats had this. Uh, during the Trump years, there there was uh, more than one, but there were there were a couple of organizations that were set up specifically to be the next Democrat president uh, presidential administration in, in waiting. They were vetting people. Um, they knew who they wanted, where they were writing the executive orders. They were writing the policy, um, and they, you know they were writing the rules that would be that would be very quickly promulgated after the next inauguration. And we need to be doing the exact same thing. We cannot be. We cannot wait. 
um, until after the next election, then try and have a mad scramble to do it and just think that everybody's going to show up and know where they're supposed to go and what they're supposed to do. <clears throat> because even for Democrats, it's very time consuming to do all that. It's a lot of it's a lot of work, but it is more so for Republicans, because remember, the the permanent bureaucracy will do everything they can to make sure that what the policies of, the, of a Republican president are not implemented. Yeah. And they know the system very well, they know how the rules work, and they will throw up every procedural administrative road, uh, roadblock that they possibly can. And we need to have ways to deal with that ahead of time. You can't, uh, otherwise we won't uh, achieve the policy ends that, that, that our next president is uh, elected to pursue. Uh, not just roadblocks, actual active uh, sedition and sabotage right. as we saw from Vinman and others. Last question to you, Chris Buskirk, the founder of the amazing website, American Greatness, amgreatness.com. You can follow him on Twitter at the Chris Buskirk and check out his book, American Greatness, as well. Um, uh, the You mentioned right at the beginning, Chris, that, that we have to focus on the family. We have to focus on, on America first. As a conservative, look... You look at the likes of Orban and Putin, and you don't really want to see attempts at massive state intervention to say, hey, have lots of kids and we'll give you cash, because not exactly a conservative reflex. But when it comes to faith and family, which is the building block of our civilization, what what does the conservative do to make that the focal point again? Is it a re-emphasis on civil society, on churches? What is the, the happy medium for a conservative to say, yes, got to be strong families, got to be faith. How do we engender that? How do we uh, make that happen in, in, in a more um, accelerated fashion? So the so I'm on the record as actually supporting a family allowance um, to because I think that some of the I, I, my view on this is that government created some of the problems that I, that I was referencing uh, before but that have caused real wages to stagnate and make it much harder for people to have the number of kids that they want. Um, there's a large percentage or, or, of, or to disincentivize people to get married. Correct. No, agreed. Uh, All of those things. And so I think it is reasonable to say that we are going to help um, underwrite some of the cost of having kids so that so that one parent it's usually going to be the mom, but one parent can afford to stay home. Um, And what you find is is that when you have one parent at home, those families tend to have more kids than the ones where both are working. I mean, that's not a surprise. That's just (laughs) that's just very practical. But I think we need to start talking about, and our leaders really need to start talking about um, why it's important that we have strong families and our families have more children, because that is the only way you have a nation that actually survives if you have more people, right? And so Europe we have to start talking vote. about it because people just don't. Conservatives don't talk about it, Chris. No, conservatives don't talk about it. We do, there's there's usually some talk about yes, we believe in the family, but let's get again, let's get concrete. Yeah, get married, have kids, get them to church, say it. Right. I mean, go. You know, you're not supposed to say anything good about FDR on the right, and I generally don't have any much good to say about him. But if you go back and read his inauguration speech from 1933, he would be. If you read that speech today and didn't tell people who it was, you would people would say it was a it was a Christian autocrat. 
No, um, yeah, th- th- this is true for mo- this is things. true for most politicians until the sixties. I mean, e- even JFK. Yeah. You read a presidential speech from left or right, and it's full of religious language. It's full of civilizational Judeo-Christian language, and it's as if the co- conservatives have forgotten this. Oh, this is. Oh, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned JFK. JFK has this great article that was published in Sports Illustrated before he. It was. It was in early 1960. It was before he was elected. But he talks about how important it is for Americans to get in shape, be fit, be strong, be outside. And you know, I just look at that. I, re- I read it a couple months ago. Um, I'd read it before, but you know, he would be. He'd probably be written out of town on a rail for that because he's talking about how important it is for a for people to maintain their physical vitality. He'd be um, canceled. And if they let themselves get out of shape, the country will be out of shape too. He'd be canceled as a fat shamer. That, that exactly. would, JFK would be canceled as a fat shamer. All right, I'm going to go off and I'm going to read that article. In the meantime, make sure you bookmark this man's webpage right now. It truly is one of the pillars of the America First movement, amgreatness.com. Follow him on Twitter, the Chris Buskirk, doing amazing work. That lasted for about three seconds as far as I'm concerned. We will have a reprise. In the meantime, my friends, keep your head on a swivel, watch your six, hold the line, never give up, never give in, and stay frosty. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.